podcast, Today's Voices of Conservation Science, and I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. And today I'm here with David Laufenberg, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. David, welcome. Hey, thanks, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great. Yeah, it's a good day. How are you? I'm doing good. We got a little snow today, so that's always nice to see. Yeah, I like looking out the window and seeing that. Yep. So um, let's start off uh, the podcast with you telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I'm from Wisconsin, and I actually did my undergrad there at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Love that place. Love that state, that town, that eco uh, zone is um, pretty spectacular. Um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I studied uh, conservation biology, and largely from uh, a literature and case study perspective. Um, but then in the summer months, uh, I spent my time working as a field technician, uh, counting and studying grassland birds of the area. And so um, through that experience, I started to become uh, a little bit more aware of the technical side of conservation ecology and natural sciences. And uh, it really started to grow on me. And um, I was fortunate, you know, that first year being on a crew that involved some of my generation's uh, best birders in the state, you know. So we'd be up at 4 a.m. to get out to these field sites to count birds. And at the time for me, it was like, well, counting birds is better than flipping burgers. So I guess I'll do that. <laughs> there you go. About the same, about yep. the same wage at that time, anyhow. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't believe it. During lunch, these, these folks would be talking with other birders around the state about rare species that were coming through the area, the Mississippi Flyway being right there, the Great Lakes being right there. And then we'd, we'd finish our days, usually by two in the afternoon or so, because we had started so much earlier. And um, I would go home and take a nap usually and try and rally for the night's potluck or party or what have you. And they'd be driving in a car a couple hours away to try and catch some rare bird before the sunset, <laughs> only to wake up the next day and try and do it again. Um, and that sort of passion, that sort of uh, enthusiasm for uh, for a subject, for a discipline, especially something as uh, infinitely complex as the natural world, it, it, it starts to grow on you day in, day out. And uh, so that's what I, I kept doing. You know, I got my uh, undergrad at Madison, and the day I graduated, I uh, turned in my cap and gown, went and had lunch at my folks' house, and jumped in the car and drove to Montana. Um, two mornings later, I was counting grassland birds, actually for the same postdoc that had hired me back in Wisconsin to count grassland birds told me if I ever wanted a job out in Montana, he was going to go and work with Wildlife Conservation Society, and I had a spot on any of his crews, so I took him up on that. And here you are. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeez, that was, yeah, that was summer of 2010, so that was eight years ago there now, actually. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun and yeah. counting birds. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you talked about... Um, being in Wisconsin and the importance of that system and kind of formative, uh, being formative in terms of kind of your drive to, <clears throat> to pursue conservation. Was there any individual or um, um, that was really instrumental in kind of you 
pursuing this career? Uh, sure. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I think like most folks, we end up with mentors along the way. Um, I've always been a, a pretty active reader. And so that, uh, that character, Aldo Leopold kept, kept coming up time and time and again. And, um, really through, through Sam County Almanac and a lot of his essays, um, I think the sort of richness and breadth that I most value in conservation ecology and in, in conservation science stems from uh, a lens uh, that he largely shaped in me. Um, and so in a literary sense, most definitely Aldo Leopold is that, is that influence. Um, in terms of my day-to-day as a college student, uh, it ended up being more so a couple different professors. Um, I had a really talented uh, advisor, Stanley Dodson, who is a limnologist, well-known limnologist at Madison, um, a Zen Buddhist, uh, just a beautiful person to spend time with and be around. And um, I, I ended up studying abroad, having the good fortune to study abroad in South America, spring year of my, uh, my junior year. And uh, my two professors, uh, Dr. Catherine Woodward and Dr. Joe Meisel, uh, had become friends, and I still uh, talk with them and um, email back and forth and ask for advice. And um, my goodness, that was 10 years ago now, I suppose. And really that time abroad with them, with 20 other students in a really intensive conservation-based tropical semester abroad, um, laid a strong foundation uh, in me to seek avenues for conserving the natural world. Did you did you ever question maybe you should have went into limnology? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my goodness. And I even I did take uh, uh, an undergrad class back in Wisconsin in mm-hmm. limnology, and you know we traveled. We had a week long uh, field trip to you know these sort of historic lakes that you see pop up in um, uh, limnological studies uh, all the way back Chauncey and Jude, the early days in limnology, really a lot of it born at Madison. Yeah. Madison's a powerhouse for that kind of research, right? Most definitely. Stephen Carpenter. Most definitely. Yes. Yes. And I've met, I've, I've eaten dinner with Stephen Carpenter, Mm -hmm. you know, living on the isthmus between two massive lakes and as part of a larger, um, you know, aquatic system, you just, the liquid water is always present in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Wisconsin uh, translates directly as the land of gathering waters. You're sitting there at really the um, the crossroads of two of the largest puddles of fresh water on the planet. Yeah. You know, yeah. Lake Superior and Lake Michigan's right there and yeah. all the rivers crisscrossing the the landscape. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was something certainly I was drawn to um, out of the gates. But like I said, my summers were mostly in the grasslands, working with avifauna, working with birds. And um, I recognize that, I mean, birds are these these great uh, biotic indicators of environmental health. And um, yeah, sure, people want to know what birds are around, but uh, in a larger sense, they reflect environmental quality and habitat. And if you count the same rare bird, you know, uh, nesting in a space for two decades, and then it doesn't show up for a few years. Um, you know, it's a little bit of an eyebrow raiser. You start asking other questions. Well, are, are there data sets seeing this trend also with this bird? And, um, well, and that, that's yeah. what I think is nice about 
birds, right? There's there, um, you know, I study fish and some of the species I study are in very turbid waters and you can look at that water or you can look at, for example, Yellowstone Lake and people look at that and it's beautiful, but what's going on underneath is, 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 uh, is, is problematic because of an invasive species with birds. They're always around us. And I think they're, they're a little bit easier in terms of, you know, um, indicating or being able to see indicators of something that's changed. So, yeah, I, I'm a novice birder and, um, love, love being able to see wildlife without having to, you know, (laughs) scuba dive or run a net or something like that. Sure. So, Let's talk a little bit about your research here at Montana State University and what you're doing for your uh, uh, graduate degree. Sure. Yeah. So uh, two years ago, I was working in Yellowstone National Park as a year-round naturalist with the park's nonprofit education partner, the Yellowstone Association, now uh, called Yellowstone Forever. And at that time, I was... Uh, able to be the point person to develop materials specific to uh, climate change in Yellowstone National Park uh, so that visitors could have some dissemination of the science regarding our changing climate and how that's impacting the natural world and that sort of thing. And um, there's this great publication that's partnered between Uh, Yellowstone National Park and uh, Yellowstone Association called Yellowstone Science. And um, actually, I think the one this year was specific to fisheries and trout. Great, you know. uh, Several of us here uh, co-authored papers for that that article or that piece. Yeah, I love that publication. You know, it's great. It's, uh, It's generally written by the scientists, by those discipline experts. But for uh, a general audience that can readily digest their efforts, the justification of their efforts and trends that they're seeing, all of these things that are so very important Mm -hmm. in terms of communicating science. Um, And so uh, that year, there was a special edition on climate change. And about half the articles, perhaps, were coming out of Montana State University. Mm Mm-hmm. And the majority of those had either Tony Chang's name, who's a recent uh, graduate doctor uh, from this university, uh, or Dr. Andy Hansen, who runs the Landscape Biodiversity Lab. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to Dr. Hansen and uh, asked if you would if you would mind meeting to talk about some of the science, and that I was an educator working in the park and. And, uh, yeah, he graciously welcomed me up to campus and we sat down and we talked about materials and how we could develop some education materials together. And I did that. And those materials are still being used every day in the park. <laughs> We're perhaps used today even, yeah, nice. um, by the, uh, cadre of, uh, instructors that work every day in the park. And in the summer months, that's 30 instructors or so daily out in the park with mm-hmm. visitors using these materials. Anyhow, fast forward another year, and uh, I was still working as a naturalist down in the park educator, but really a strong research background, which was, um, hmm. uh, it's, it's not uncommon to see that, I think, with, uh, you know, educators in their respective disciplines. Um, 
but I, I brought a pretty strong, you know, research perspective to the, to the education game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I had mentioned to Dr. Hanson that I was interested maybe someday in going back to graduate school and I wasn't getting any younger. And he reached out to me and said more or less that there was a, an opportunity in the lab and he could help support me and um, facilitate a, a master's project. And what, what is it that I would be interested in? And another friend of mine, Dr. Jesse Logan, old timer down in greater Yellowstone and, you know, summer's an emigrant and winter's in Cook City. And uh, he's, he's continued to leave, la- you know, lasting impressions on me and my thought process. And he's still a great mentor for me. And I'll be teaching a seminar with him this summer, actually with Yellowstone forever. Um, but he brought to my attention and it's hard not to notice as one who spends a lot of time recreating in the higher country around here that, um, really this transitional pine species, as you move from the treed landscape to the true alpine that's treeless in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, um, the, the last tree you see is white bark pine. And since the year 2000, the majority of mature white bark pine have died in this ecosystem. And I'm guessing your research is going to kind of try and tease that apart why they're, why they're dying. But if not, I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Me too. We're yeah. all super curious. Yeah. And it, it does seem like, you know, the ultimate, ultimate piece is uh, changing climate more proximately. It seems tied to mountain pine beetle folks from Colorado, right. I've seen a lot of that. And, um, and then also uh, an introduced non-native blister rust or like this invasive fungal disease that they suffer. So those are all kind of, are they all kind of interconnected, right? The warming climate with the pine beetle and the blister rust. And maybe it's, <clears throat> sounds like it might be these three things working in combination. Most definitely, most definitely. And so there's been a fair number of studies regarding, you know, white bark and conservation efforts regarding white bark. And my my piece that I that I'm tackling is a is a conservation effort that the Greater Yellowstone Coordinating Committee has undertaken in the past 10, 15 years in Associated National Forests of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, where they've actually been planting uh, white bark pine uh, out on the landscape. And so my uh, my project is to visit these historic planting sites, so these sites that are greater than five years old, more in the 10 to 15 year range, revisit these sites that haven't been visited um, since the year of planting or a couple of years post-planting and see how, how are we doing? Are these, uh, are these trees thriving? Are they dying? Is there some middle ground? And what is the biophysical gradient associated with the performance of these pines? So the trees that are dying are the, the large um, trees that have been around for a thousand years thousand or more. Years. Some of them, yeah. And But are they producing little trees? Because I'm trying to make the connection with the trees that are planted. Um, are those also affected by the same things that the large trees, the old trees are? Right, yeah. So the mountain pine beetle generally goes after more mature trees. And for this species, that's long-lived and late to mature, over a thousand years old, some of these individuals, and they take 50 to 100 years minimum before they bear cones. Um, The mountain pine beetle generally goes after those older individuals. The blister rust is found with young as well, but there is some indication that they prefer the older 
individuals also. Um, what happens is that these massive stand die-offs occur, and then there's no seeds to be planted back in that landscape. And, mm-hmm. um, actually, there's a, a, a strong bird tie-in, the Clark's Nutcracker, which first brought me yeah. to this situation, as you may have suspected, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah you probably yep. saw that coming. Yep, most definitely. Yeah. So I first really got roped into this by way of the Clark's Nutcracker, that wily Corvid. Yeah. <laughs> yep, so, and that's, you know, that's sort of a... Um, it's an aspect of my work, but it's, uh, I've become more of a, uh, plant, uh, ecologist and conservation ecologist through a, through a botanist perspective for my masters, which has been valuable actually. So you're going back and evaluating these trees that are planted, probably looking at growth rates, survival, those kinds exactly. of things. And so I just have an, another question that I'd like to ask is that, um, what's the best thing you could discover? Mm-hmm. So you finish writing your thesis, you're all done. And what is like the best thing that you would like to see come out of your project? That's a discover? great, that's a great question. And that's, uh, uh, that's a, that's the goal, right? That would mm-hmm. be lovely. Okay. So what is the most ideal situation coming out of this? I would say, you know, my funding is from uh, federal agencies, from the Forest Service predominantly. And so the best thing that could come out was would be very clear indications of the best areas to plant whitebark for the continued existence and persistence of this species at a level that represents some uh, you know, ecological integrity on the landscape. So kind of figuring out what maybe the slope, the soil. Totally. Aspect, elevation. Elevation, and all those kinds of things. So you could guide these federal agencies to um, getting the highest success rate or uh, replanting uh, white bark pine. Most definitely. And I think the crux here is that so often with planting efforts, at least traditional planting efforts, it's been for harvest. This is not, right? This is for conservation. Right. And this is a species that if we plant all these individuals, but they die at age 50 and they never see cones, well, then we haven't, we haven't done a good job. Right. So it's, it's really considering that, that long-term perspective, really trying to, to think like the white bark and, uh, you know, how does this, how does this long game play out? Yeah, that's cool. Thinking like the white bark. I like that. Um, one last question just to, to have a little fun here is I like to ask what folks' favorite animal um, or plant or both here, and I'm guessing the plant we already have figured out from this conversation, and we might even have the animal figured out, but you could throw us a curveball. So what, what do you what do you have for us? <laughs> Maybe for listeners, it, it could be a curveball. But for you, Chris, I'm thinking you know exactly where I'm headed. I'm going to jump out in front on it and call it the golden eagle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And the white bark pine. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, sure. For the plants, of course, most definitely. Excellent. Well, David, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with uh, me today. And I wish you the best in your graduate career at Montana State University. And... Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and don't forget to spread the word about this podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. Happy to be here.